Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed what Cook County actually does, chatted about dreaming and science fiction, and learned about public education. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for February 21st, 2020. Jamie chatted with John Daly. No, not that John Daly. He does that every week. This John Daly is the Cook County Commissioner and longtime Chicago politician. He discussed what Cook County does, his take on the upcoming presidential election, and how to succeed in a Bridgeport garden. His hint, have two. Radio Free Bridgeport with the regular John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. I I am extremely thrilled to be able to present this show today. John, uh, the regular John Daly, John Daly the Younger, uh, is actually in Springfield today. I believe he's working on a piece of legislation. So a couple uh, months ago when I was out, um, I sent a ringer in to be with John. And of course, that was my father, Jerry Trecker. Today, John has returned the favor and sent in a ringer, his father, John Daly. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you well, so thank much you. for joining thank us. I need to be with you. This is amazing. So John, you, by the way, how did you guys distinguish yourself at, at home? What did you call John when he was a kid? Uh, Little John. Little John. Okay. I'm going to remember that, and I think we're going to— JR. JR. Okay. I'm going to remember that. Um, For those of you that don't know, uh, John Daly has had a a long career in politics. You're involved in Cook County politics. And and some of the things we want to discuss today, um, because, you know, I do sometimes play clueless on this show, but I am genuinely actually a little bit clueless about Cook County and, and county politics. You are running for committee men, right, yes. in this coming election, unopposed, but you are on the ballot. Could you start off by discussing a little bit about what Cook County does? Because I, you know, living here in Chicago, I think some people get the impression that it's Chicago and then the state, but there's a large governmental body that exists with it. And Cook County is one of the largest economic uh, divisions in North America, correct? It is. And as you said, uh People relate to the state government and mostly to their local government. But Cook County plays a very vital role. We at Cook County, there's 17 Cook County commissioners. The chief executive is Tony Preckwinkle, and there are 11 other elected officials. Uh, the president is the executive. Uh, she is responsible for presenting the budget from the other elected officials. And we as county commissioners, well, when the budget is presented, we'll go through that through the department heads, uh, as well as all the electeds come for their individual hearings. We will question the electeds on their budget, what's going on in their office, and if they need additional money. Uh, they all want additional money, mm-hmm. but none of them will come ask for revenue. So we ask them, uh, what, what, why do you need this, and will you support any revenues? And if you need revenues for your, your office, then you, what suggestions do you have? So what does Cook County then spend money on? Because, you know, here in, in the city, I, I keep thinking of, you know, the city of Chicago is spending it on roads, bridges, police, fire. So what what is well, Cook County responsible for? We're responsible for the public safety and health. That's the vast majority of our budget. Okay. So we run Stroger Hospital. We run a number of ambulatory centers. We have Providence Hospital. Okay. And then the also, unfortunately, we run the jail system okay. as well as juvenile detention. The vast majority of our budget is, if you add them together, public safety and health is in the about 67, 68% of our budget is in those two areas. Uh, and um, so you have the hospital. You have Stroger Hospital, a great hospital that is uh, 
under has some problems recently, but that we provide charity care for more than any other hospital in the, in the city. Um, we have the largest percent of uncompensated care uh, in the city in the city of Chicago. Uh, the taxpayers pay for it. Right. And what we're as we approach this year. Um, and 20 uh, this year and going forward is that the other private hospitals step forward and do more. They do a lot now. They're, they are doing uncompensated care and they are doing health fair and centers, uh, health fairs, as well as education for young doctors, providing scholarships in the minority if, uh, for minority students. But we cannot continue to provide this uncompensated care at the rate that we're growing. Um, we also have county care, which, which is an individual, if they meet uh, this percent of poverty level, that they could sign up for co- uh, county care. That provides full health care for them. It's uh, full health care, and they once they are enrolled, they could go to our services at Stroger or out at other, any other hospital in the, in the county, and we provide the health pay their bill. So this is Stroger's a trauma center too. Trauma right? is probably one of the best trauma centers in the country. Okay, doctors who are be throughout their training, all but would like to come to uh, come to Stroger to be trained. Mm-hmm. It is a great trauma center. It's one of it's uh, Stroger. We have Christ Northwestern and uh, University of Chicago open one else, and I believe there's one other one. Okay, so when you just so people get the a clear picture. You basically, the Cook, the Cook County system is responsible for covering all the health care for people that go to Stroger. For example, if somebody's injured and they're sent uh, to Stroger, that care is, is picked up by the county unless obviously they've got some kind of other insurance right, or anything. Right. And this is a massive undertaking. I mean, it, it, it must be in the tens of millions of dollars a year. We do, we try to provide, and if anyone comes in, we provide uh, health care, no matter what their means are, we try to get them enrolled in county care, okay. Medicaid, as well as well as Medicare, and those are the areas we try to enroll them in. It is amazing the number as as well uh, as people who come in who have no coverage whatsoever. We have a tremendous amount of young people who believe I'm very healthy. I don't need health care yeah. and will not pr- pay for it. Right. Um, even though under the Obamacare, uh, Affordable Care, they still believe, I don't need it. But right. yet, they come into the hospital, they got, unfortunately, in a terrible accident. Right. They need insurance, and we were able to provide it for it. Yeah, and of course, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm on the marketplace system with Obamacare as well. Okay. So it, that, that's been a, a, a life changer. But it is amazing how much money still the county has to pump into health care and yeah. what a major expense that is for you. What is the county doing to try to maybe bring health care costs down for, for taxpayers? What we're doing is to, number one, get people enrolled. Okay. And that is a key because if – and get them – we're opening ambulatory centers and trying to provide people with health care early on rather than waiting later until they have a illness. We have – we're opening – we just opened – we'll be opening a center in a new clinic in Blue Island in North Riverside. Mm-hmm. We have we have it up in Palatine and as well as numerous other sites. And what we're asking is just – and we open a new one uh, right adjacent to the Stroger Hospital to urge people to come in, not to use the emergency room as their primary care center, to come into these centers and get their health care right at, right at the, at the clinics. Yeah. And it is great quality care. We have the core center, the largest HIV center and contagious throughout the country. And um, 
that is, uh, I'm as chair of, of the mm-hmm. of the core center. We provide great quality care. Um, I've been on there that board since it it opened, and you have seen the tremendous change. People are living longer. So when we opened it initially, it was a death sentence, and people were coming there. Yeah. And none, none, we also had the fear of people did not want to be identified walking into the center. Right. It was a debate whether or not it should be called an HIV center, right. and that they, they definitely said no on that. Uh, but people are living with HIV. And now we're able to, we have to repurpose that core center to meet the needs of the, those patients today. So the other side of this is public safety. And what do you, is this, are we talking about sheriffs? Are we talking we about? We talked about the sheriff, public okay. defender, the state's attorney's office, okay. as well as the clerk of the circuit court and the chief judge. Okay. And all of those, uh, Tom Dart, the sheriff of the county, has said, you know, uh, the, and he, we've seen a tremendous reduction in, in, in individuals at the at the uh, jail, mm-hmm. um, but he has said it, and it is probably true. He probably has the largest mental health center in the country. Right. And the anyone in, who who goes into the jail, they do a screening and they are evaluated for mental health on mental health services and needs. And we we the taxpayers of this county provide those services to them. Now, why I guess why is the system? I mean. This may be an obvious question, but I honestly don't know the answer. Why is the system set up so that it is the county's responsibility to provide these things and not the city's or the state's? Well, the state does have a responsibility, and okay. we also uh, – but the county picked this up. Um, Health care is a state, really a state responsibility. Okay. But we picked it up under the county when, X amount of years ago and provide that we should provide health care to the – individuals in Cook County. We do have an agreement with the state uh, for reimbursement, mm-hmm. and we get, a as a safety net hospital, like the other hospitals through who are safety net are provide, uh, paid through the state uh, as a safety net hospital. We have challenges. As you might have read a week or two, uh, two weeks ago, there are four hospitals right. in the city that are going to merge. Yes. We at Providence Hospital, we are right in the, in the center of that. Mm-hmm. So the administration at the hospital decided they would hold back on building a new Providence to see how these hospitals, and they are, they are Mercy, they're St. Bernard's, right. they're uh, Tr- uh, Trinity and South Shore, Shore. And to see how... The health care today is going, going to be totally different from 10, 20 years ago, and that's what these four hospitals will address. And I believe we should be in that Providence Hospital will be in the mix as well. So there, if I correct me if I'm wrong here, they're trying to get scale together, right? Because they were, I mean, I know Mercy obviously serves, you know, people in this neighborhood Right, as and well. as you know, they merged a number of years ago right. with Trinity. Right. Um, and, Tr- and then Trinity also has Loyola Hospital. Right. But I think these four hospitals which serve primarily the south side of Chicago mm-hmm. and south suburbs, have to decide where they, they're going to be in the future and how they could work together in making sure the quality care that they're providing now will continue to the city 10, 15 years from now. And all four hospitals are committed to that. So, because, I mean, I think there was some concern when I first read that story that people would uh, lose some of the care that they were used to. I know they're trying to form also some more, I guess, ambulatory and centers and, right. and smaller care centers. And I think that's a wave. I think they will have one 
my understanding when I read the story, they will have one primary hospital, maybe 200 beds, and then have a, maybe an ambulatory south and mm-hmm. uh, further uh, north on the north side of these four. Because that's where you, ambulatory will pr- provide probably outpatient surgery. Right. Those are the individuals who only have to spend a couple of hours in the hospital. Right. Uh, but they're all competing against each other, and they can't continue to survive. There are four great hospitals who have been committed to the South Side for their t- the, since they, they existed, yeah. and they are going to conti- provide continue to provide top quality care. I-94 spoke to Tope Falloran, author of the novel A Particular Kind of Black Man. Falloran spoke about his love of science fiction, how many authors of color are pigeonholed, and why toddlers need nap times. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. So today we're going to be discussing your your first novel, uh, A Particular Kind of Black Man. You've also written short stories and stuff. And if you'll forgive me, uh, I'm going to kind of give a sort of uh, potted summary of the book. Please feel free to correct me. Uh, But this is a book about um, identity. Uh, It's a story of a young man who... uh, his family emigrates to America from Nigeria. Uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because this happens very early in the book, but his mother uh, suffers from mental illness. Uh, She eventually leaves the family, and then uh, during the course of the book, uh, that is going to reverberate back and forth in a number of ways. He's going to grow up to be a young man. He's going to go to college, and we'll get to all that in a moment. But Tope, I have a number of things I want to talk to you about in the book, particularly the idea of... Um, dreaming versus reality. Uh, and when yes. I say that, I, I mean very distinctly uh, because I come out, I was, I grew up in Britain, and I come out of a very strong tradition of where people told you, you know, if your head's in the clouds, you're never going to make anything of yourself. You have to be really grounded yeah. in reality. And I think you make a really interesting point in this book because the main character uh, goes to college and he basically dreams a life for himself. And there's a key moment in the book where he suddenly realizes that he has to now insert himself into his own story. Yes. And I, I yes. think you're, you're making an interesting point. Again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you're making a very interesting point about uh, immigrants coming to America or people who may not have grown up with the advantages uh, that some of us do, that it is very attractive to dream up your own narrative and, and cause a way for yourself to have a new kind of identity. So I wondered if you yeah. could kind of start off there because uh, it, it brings up a whole host of questions for me about <clears throat> virtual reality. It brings up a lot of questions for me about identity and meaning. Um, and it also brings up a lot of questions about um, – class structure, you know, because again, yeah. I grew up in Britain. I, I know you've got a Nigerian background. I think you probably yeah. have the same background I do where, you know, that sort of don't, don't dream about things was also a meaning of social control. 
Absolutely. No, first of all, thank you so much for that question, because it's such a perceptive question, and it's exactly what I was going for. Um, and the reason I'm excited that you asked that question is that oftentimes when I talk about the book, people kind of in- begin to focus immediately on the kind of immigration angle. I, I suppose it's because um, of what's happening, you know, from a political perspective here in this country, and people are focused kind of on, on what that means for people like the immigration experience. But um, you're exactly right. That's what I wanted to focus on, the importance of dreaming and and how it can be a kind of strategy for um, creating a new identity and a new life for yourself. Now, there's obviously this idea about the American dream, which is something that falls apart at least, uh, for uh, Tunde's father, who's Tunde's protagonist, at the outset. And so Tunde kind of decisively turns away from that because he begins to distrust the notion of a dream as something that can carry you into a reality that uh, makes sense for you. Um, but then he does, as you said before, he has a kind of mental break when he goes to college. And because he cares deeply about stories and literature, he begins to kind of envision this future for himself that isn't at the outset real. Um, but he utilizes the skills that he's gained over the course of his life as a reader and writer to create this kind of vision and idea for himself um, that is meaningful and that um, it's a space where he can actually kind of survive and be without worrying about how somebody might, um, you know, sort of try to categorize him or sideline him or marginalize him in some way. And that becomes meaningful. And that is, and I'm really glad as well that you raised a virtual reality point, because uh, as it happens, I spent a couple of years working at Google, um, and, I, and I am a science fiction fanatic. So I spend a lot of time, you know, when I was growing up, I often envisioned what it would be like to go on the holodeck and spend. And, and you're exactly right, like, especially in this society, in the UK, it's the same, and Nigeria, in its own way, is the same. Uh, we're taught that you have to kind of abandon your dreams, jettison those ideas that, you know, you can kind of, there's this idea that if you lose yourself in fantasy, that you're losing yourself, right? And part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is that for many people, especially marginalized communities, um, that kind of virtual space, if you will, that dream space, is actually a really viable space to kind of create a sense of self and project yourself into the future. If your entire life and the history of your people is, One, especially when they're telling those stories, is one of kind of depression and anxiety and oppression. Um, That can weigh on you in a really, in a really uh, sort of oppressive way in in the present tense. But if you kind of sit down and say, okay, what kind of future do I want for myself? And you kind of actively try to imagine it, and then you inhabit it. I think that becomes a really kind of interesting and viable possibility for constructing a future, as well as constructing a sense of self. So. Again, thank you so much for that question. That's precisely what I was going for in the book. Well, the, the particulars of it in the novel were interesting to me. The, the, the way that idea was handed down from first-generation immigrant to, to second. So Tunde's father yeah. always tells him not to listen to music. Or I'm sorry, it's Tunde, right? Tunde. 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 Okay, thank you. Tunde, um, yeah. We routinely yeah. slaughter names in this show, yeah. by the yeah. way. Yeah. Topic. Par for the course. It's completely fine. That's yeah. why I asked what your, how to pronounce your name in the email because I we we've sure. had some we've had some real uh, real blunders. Over real boners, as we would say. This is the slaughterhouse city. Yeah. It was, um, but his his father forbids him basically listen to anything but uh, a specific type of Nigerian music and, and gospel music. Yeah. But then they they yeah. catch him and his stepbrother find this record collection that their dad has. Um, yeah. He also buys a cowboy hat when he comes to America, which yeah, is a beautiful was... detail. I love that <laughs> at the start of the book. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, you, you you get to see the different internal conflicts between generations, you know, and it reminded me a lot of the stories I heard about, you know, my ancestors who came over from Europe, the immigrant Jews who, yeah. who would kind of have that same uh, 
that same conflict about making sure their children walk the straight and narrow, making sure that they're assimilated and, yeah. uh, and, and trying to maintain their roots themselves and assimilate at the same yeah. time. Well, what absolutely the way the novel affected me is that although it is a story about immigration and, and also about your Nigerian roots, I, what struck me is the identity of, there was a particular uh, story in the novel when, Tunde has a Michael Jackson shirt on, and he's yeah. and a kid tells him it's a dope shirt, and he's like, "Is that good or bad? I don't know." <laughs> and I was, uh, you know, I, I I come from a completely different background. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. My parents were very yeah. blue collar, um, and but the identity crisis that he goes through and continues to go through throughout the book, I could relate to so well. I remember. When I was in junior high, and I'm sure Jamie, you and Mike not might not remember this tope, but there was an era of parachute pants. Oh, of course, yeah. And, uh. and I remember <laughs> buying parachute. MC Hammer, man. Buying parachute. Oh pants. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like a couple years later, they're out of style, and I wore them to school, and like this girl just let me have it, you know. And I was just like, I didn't. <laughs> sure. And it was very. I'm at the time, it was devastating, you know. I like I laugh <laughs> yeah. about it now, but you know, and and you know, I became a punk rocker when I was young, and but I yeah. It was amazing to me how two people that have completely different stories can relate so well. Because throughout the book, I'm like, this is this is like in a strange way very similar to how I grew up, although in a totally different environment. Sure, but yeah. this, but situationally, I, I could relate in many ways. And to me, that's just very powerful writing. Yeah, I appreciate that, and. And I think part of what I was thinking about as well when I wrote it is, you know, this idea that most of us, when we grow up, if not all of us, are kind of handed an identity card. Our parents say to us, this is who you are, this is how to situate yourself in the world, this is how you should respond to certain circumstances, right? And so, um, for generation upon generation, uh, this is something that many kids in this country have experienced. And from, it, and it's worked out, you know, more or less for most people. Like, you get this identity card from your parents, you know, not literal, but a kind of sense of how to be in the world, and you kind of adopt that as your own. You might make some amendments and, and change it here and there, but for the most part, you accept it. Um, but what's happening in this century, and sort of the latter part of last uh, last century, and certainly this century, is that we now have an option of kind of constructing our own identities. And so I think for many of us who were in that position where we were trying to kind of step out or experiment, and we were immediately kind of, you know, chastised for it, um, I think in many ways uh, now that isn't happening as much as it once did because especially I think the internet plays a major role in that. You know, you can go online and kind of create a profile for yourself that aligns with who you feel like you are internally, even if that doesn't match who you are externally, and people will accept that. And so I think that I was trying to. I think in many ways you're kind of it, it, we're kind of like identity pioneers. You know, we were kind of striking out and trying to you know trying new and interesting things, and people kind of. Uh, you know, sort of chastise us for that. But I, I think that now m more people are coming around to the idea that it's it's acceptable to kind of fully express who you are, um, regardless of what your circumstances are or, or who you might be um, externally. And I think that's incredibly exciting. Hey there, Trekker, I see you're working on the old soldering iron there. Shut it, Kyle. Oh, whoa, whoa, what's with the hostilities? It's a lovely fall day uh, in the port. I'm sorry, Kyle, it's these f***ing 
fucking lump in computers. They keep breaking and it's driving me nuts. And it sounds like no, he needs No, no, no. Last time we listened to you, our entire server got sent to Latvia. I'm still paying off subscriptions to Jermala Siete, whatever the hell that is. I think that's a bridal service, but no, I'm telling you, I got this guy. Hey, what's it's... going on, Jagoffs? Oh, great. Mutton Jeff. I will overlook that remark so that you may admire my fine new Rolex. Uh, 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 look at it. It's catching the light. It's sparkly. The heck did you get the money for that? Oh, I didn't buy it. Okay, guys, this is great, but I still have to start this mother f uh, board back in. I'm telling you, I have met this computer genius, and he can solve the problem here. Are you talking about Cole? Oh, my iPhone has never been better. Yeah, it's Cole. I, 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 my little flipper here can make calls anywhere because of this guy. Hell, that's an old can of shoe polish, not a phone. Now, come on. Ah, shoot, that's me. Hold on. Hello? I guess this is he. Why, yes, I would love to discuss reverse mortgage. That's a can of... Oh, yeah. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Almost certainly. So this is the home of the computer mancer, the flying fingers, the technological wizard of Tamara. Uh, this is the old Lena's. I heard it was infested with rats. Yeah, what's that got to do with computing? <laughs> Nothing, it's just... Who dares trespass into my arcane sanctuary? Uh, yeah, maybe so this is a bad idea. Speak your business, mortal, lest I rain brimstone and cyber bolts down upon thine head. Yeah, I mean, you should at least look at the problem. We came all this way. I mean, we, he's we got... We walked to... across the street, Kyle. Oh, I see now, once again, the townsfolk of Bridgeport crawl to my doorstep, entreating the great Computomancer for tech support. Well, if you think it's a poor decision, feel free to exit through the portal to your left. So distrustful, uh -huh. Jamie. No, by all means, please leave me to my studies. I was embroiled in a friendly psychic duel before you so rudely oh, interrupted. Oh, Jesus. Okay, look, here's the laptop. What it's doing is... Silence! My mystical scrying will tell me all that is plaguing your device. Yeah, that's not good. Initium. Capenium. Perficiendus! What the you desired it to run, yes. Now it runs quite well. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, oh my God. I think this is I impressive, gotta, but I, I just need this thing chairs. to play underwriting, not gallop around the room on hooves. Ha! You peasants have no grasp on humor, do you? Can you make no time for some simple wizard's comedy? Or are your provincial radio needs so important? Oh, I didn't mean any disrespect at all, trust me. No, I understand clearly your precious broadcast requires immediate attention. Very well, allow me to address your concerns properly. Ut versus un proteste et virtute remove! You know... Trucker, we need to work on your interpersonal skills. Are you high? The station robot is racing around the room on what appears to be spider legs. What the hell am I supposed to do now? How dare you speak to me with such insolence? insolence. You dare question my eldritch methods? This is a mere, uh, um, <clears throat> arcane difficulty. But you have impunged upon my methods one too many times. Begone, ye mortal. Return to thy oh, realm no, at once. Bart, the great wizard is angry. 
Leave now and take your laptop. Leave now and take your impudence with you. And go. Hey, watch your fingers. Tremendous vasty. Hey, hey, look sharp. Kyle, I swear to God, I'm absolutely going to kill oh, you. Oh, this is the future shock. With Doom, chill, everyone. Wait, is that, is that Logan? Oh, man, we haven't seen him since... Episode 34. The computer mancer summoned the spirit of the Bridgeport hyperweb. And that is I. Oh. Well, what have you been doing all this time? Well, mainly avoiding Ed and trying to find more IDM DJs. Jamie really hates that stuff. And while we're on the subject, Jamie, you haven't been nearly evil enough. I'm sorry, boss. Your title is Evil Station Manager. I'm... I'm sorry, boss. Don't call me boss. Um, I'm sorry, boss. Well, let's get this all sorted out. It seems the lumpen laptop was contaminated with the demon from Portsbridge. Did you guys travel to the world of Level Eater without protection? Ah, yeah, that was me. Of course it was. A simple little bit of reversing code, and the lumpen laptop is good as new. For 2010, anyway. Ha ha ha. Hell yeah. Thanks, Logan. And now I must return to my crash somewhere above Phil's. What a hero. Is there anything he can't do? But what are we going to do with the uh, computer mancer? Oh, I've got an idea. That's $11.99. Thanks for shopping at Maria's. Hey, um, excuse me, Logan? What is it, my child? I pawned the tape recorder you gave me, like... I know. Um, but the thing is, the episodes keep getting recorded, like... Everything that Kyle and I say shows up on these shows, and I haven't even had, like, a microphone. The Bridgeport hyperweb knows all and sees all, my child. Go with Grace. Really, you should go with Grace. The copro is out of toilet paper again. Oh, no. This week on the Trump Diaries, fear grows over Trump's weaponizing of the Justice Department, William Barr begs Trump to stop tweeting, Amazon wins in court, Trump pardons four white-collar felons, including Blagojevich, Trump offers Assange a pardon, but only if he lies, and Trump signals he'll pardon Roger Stone. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,121, February 14th. In a rebuke to Trump, Attorney General William Barr asked him to stop tweeting, saying his comments made it impossible to do his job. Quote, I think it's time to stop the tweeting about Department of Justice criminal cases. Barr claimed that Trump has never asked him to intervene in a criminal case, but said that Trump's commentary surrounding the Roger Stone matter has damaged the image of the Justice Department. It was the first pushback against Trump by a sitting member of his cabinet. Trump claimed in response that he has, quote, the legal right to ask Barr to intervene in federal criminal cases. Quote, this doesn't mean that I do not have as president the legal right to do so. I do, but I have so far chosen not to. This is false. Also, Barr assigned an outside prosecutor to review the criminal case against Michael Flynn. Trump has claimed the case against Flynn was a setup. Flynn repeatedly lied to the FBI about his contacts with Russian agents. 
In another case involving alleged Trump interference, a federal judge ordered Microsoft to halt all work on a $10 billion cloud computing contract for the Pentagon. That is a victory for Amazon, who has sued over the awarding of that contract, alleging that Trump torpedoed the deal due to his animosity toward Jeff Bezos, Amazon's chief executive and the owner of the Washington Post. The Post coverage of Trump has been unrelentingly critical. The Army will not investigate Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman following Trump's claims the military would take a look at the figure who testified about Trump's, quote, perfect phone call. Trump claimed Vindman, quote, said so many horrible things about me. And the Justice Department will not charge former FBI Director Andrew McCabe with lying to investigators. Trump was not given advance notice of that decision, which reportedly enraged him. A White House official said, quote, Trump believes very strongly that action should be taken against McCain. Day 1122, February 15th. In a televised interview, Trump admitted he ordered Rudy Giuliani to go to the Ukraine to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Trump had previously and strenuously denied that during his impeachment inquiry. Geraldo Rivera asked Trump if he was sorry that he sent Giuliani to Ukraine. Quote, no, not at all. Here's my choice. I deal with the Comeys of the world or I deal with Rudy. Trump then claimed Giuliani is a crime fighter and that, quote, other presidents had lawyers. Trump's Trump trade advisor, Peter Navarro, has apparently been conducting his own investigation to uncover the identity of the person known as Anonymous. That person is alleged to be a senior Trump administration official who recently published the best-selling book titled A Warning. Navarro has reportedly been compiling a profile of the language and phrases used in Anonymous's book to cross-reference them with a list of potential suspects. The Department of Homeland Security reportedly waived 10 federal contracting laws to speed up construction of Trump's border wall. That included laws on open competition and insurance. The DHS claimed waiving the laws would speed up the construction of 177 miles of a border wall. Meanwhile, controlled blasting at Arizona's Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument has destroyed several Native American burial sites. The National Monument is a UNESCO heritage site. Trump deployed tactical units from the southern border to, quote, sanctuary cities this weekend. The officers were sent to cities including Chicago, New York, San Francisco, and L.A. The TAC units are assisting ICE agents in, quote, immigrant roundups. A number of ex-employees have returned to the White House. Hope Hicks, Sean Spicer, and Rins Priebus all returned, as well as Trump's former body man, John McEntee. McEntee was notably fired by then-Chief of Staff John Kelly over security clearance issues. However, the top intelligence lawyer who initially blocked the whistleblower complaint from reaching Congress is resigning. Jason Clinton Neck resigned from the General Counsel for the Office of Director of National Intelligence. Day 1,123, February 16th. In a remarkable escalation of tensions, over 1,100 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials called on Attorney General Barr to step down. Barr is being criticized after he intervened last week to lower a sentencing recommendation for Trump's longtime friend Roger Stone. Barr is also apparently reopening sentencing in a case involving Michael Flynn. Trump aide Kellyanne Conway claimed remarkably that Trump is a victim of a two-tier criminal justice system and called upon Barr to punish former FBI head Andrew McCabe. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has canceled a planned trip to the United States after Trump slammed down the phone on him. Johnson has defied Trump over the use of a Chinese firm, Huawei, to build a 5G network in Britain. Trump also rejected a request by the Prime Minister to extradite the wife of a U.S. diplomat who hit and killed a child. She has been reportedly named as a CIA asset. 
Trump's behavior during the call was described by White House officials as apoplectic. The House of Representatives voted to eliminate the deadline for states to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. The measure passed the House largely along party lines, however, five Republicans voted in support. The amendment, which was proposed initially in 1972, originally had a ratification deadline of 1979. Why is unclear. Last month, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the ERA. Senate leader Mitch McConnell said he is, quote, not a supporter of the measure and is therefore unlikely to come to the Senate floor. The United States charged Huawei with racketeering and conspiracy to steal trade secrets from American companies. The United States is alleging Huawei has worked to steal trade secrets, including source code and manuals for wireless technology. The United States has aggressively pushed back against the company's 5G technology, claiming it contains extensive backdoors to the Chinese government. And Stephen Miller, the senior White House advisor, tied the knot over the weekend. A wedding announcement in the New York Times that omitted the fact that Miller is behind some of the Trump administration's cruelest immigration policies drew large numbers of reader comment. Members of Miller's own family celebrated his wedding by making large and public donations to refugee advocacy organizations. Trump attended the wedding, which of course took place at the Trump International Hotel in Washington. February 17th. The National Association of Federal Judges called an emergency meeting to address the intervention in politically sensitive cases by both Trump and Attorney General Barr after more than 2,000 life-term federal judges said the issue could not wait. Meanwhile, Trump threatened to file retaliatory lawsuits all over the place for damages he claims to have incurred as a result of Robert Mueller's investigation. Quote, everything having to do with this fraudulent investigation is badly tainted and, in my opinion, should be thrown out. Trump also accused Mueller of lying to Congress without evidence and began a purge of all officials related to the investigation from the FBI. A federal judge overseeing Roger Stone's criminal trial refused to delay his sentencing despite Trump's claim that the Stone conviction, quote, should be thrown out. Stone's defense team also requested a new trial, which was rejected. Judge Amy Berman Jackson ordered both sides to participate in the hearing after the prosecutors in charge of the case resigned following Barr's interference in the matter. Trump said again that Stone had been treated unfairly and you're going to see what happens. You will see what happens. Jackson memorably sanctioned Stone after he tweeted a picture of her with rifle crosshairs superimposed on her face. Deputy National Security Advisor Victoria Coates is to be reassigned from the National Security Council to the Department of Energy. Coates has been the subject of a whisper campaign saying she is the author known as Anonymous. That has been strenuously denied in an unusual public statement by the publisher of the book, which says Coates doesn't know who the author is, is not the author, and has no knowledge of anything in the book whatsoever. And Trump celebrated President's Day by driving the presidential motorcade at the Daytona 500. To applause, Trump and his wife led the NASCAR drivers around the track in the Beast, which is the armored car used to transport the president safely. Rain, however, caused the delay of the Daytona 500. Day 1125, February 18th. Falsely calling himself, quote, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, Trump commuted the 14-year prison sentence of former Illinois Governor Rob Blagojevich, who was convicted of trying to sell Barack Obama's vacated Senate seat for personal gain, among other crimes. Trump also pardoned the financier Michael Milken, former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, and Edward J. Bartolo, who is a former owner of the San Francisco 49ers. All of those were prominent public figures convicted of charges including fraud, corruption, and lying to police. 
multiple pardons left Attorney General William Barr close to resigning, according to an Associated Press report. Trump then claimed Michael Bloomberg, a Democratic candidate, was running, quote, a large-scale illegal campaign contribution by allegedly paying people who then support his campaign. According to Trump, Bloomberg has, quote, violated campaign finance laws at the highest and most sinister level with payoffs all over the place. Intriguingly, Trump has paid little attention to campaign finance laws in the past. He has repeatedly pardoned people, such as Dinesh D'Souza, who were convicted of actual campaign finance violations, and privately exhorted people such as Rudy Giuliani and Jeff Sessions to embrace outside and illegal campaign help. There is no suggestion that Michael Bloomberg has actually engaged in any wrongdoing. John Bolton claimed his forthcoming book contains revelations about Trump's misconduct far beyond the Ukraine matter. Bolton said the Ukraine report, quote, is like the sprinkles on the ice cream sundae in terms of what's in the book. Bolton subsequently claimed he's being censored and that, quote, Trump can tweet about me, but I'm not supposed to say anything. I say things in the manuscript about what he, meaning Trump, said to me. I hope they become public someday. Day 1126, February 19th. Trump called for a special counsel to investigate what he claimed was a seditious conspiracy at the Justice Department and the FBI, demanding justice for himself and future presidents. Trump also claimed that Barr should clean house at the Justice Department. Meanwhile, Barr is publicly acknowledging he could be forced to step down by Trump's continued harassment. Senate Republicans are urging Trump to keep Barr on the job, warning the Senate would be unlikely to confirm a successor. A lawyer for Julian Assange claimed in court that Trump offered a presidential pardon if the WikiLeaks founder publicly denied that Russia hacked emails from Democrats before the 2016 election. Lawyer Edward Fitzgerald told a British court that former U.S. Republican Congressman Dana Rohrabacher personally delivered the offer to Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy in London. Rohrabacher is known for having a peculiar affinity for Vladimir Putin. And hackers are using misspelled links in Rudy Giuliani's tweets to spread malware. Giuliani has more than 650,000 Twitter followers, including politicians, journalists, and Trump Organization members. Cyber trolls, using a technique called typo-squatting, are exploiting Giuliani's habit of mischaracterizing links and infecting hundreds of pages linked to 2020 presidential candidates. Day 1127, February 20th. Democratic debates combusted last night into starkly personal attacks as Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, both seen as having little to lose, turned in their strongest performances to date. Most of those attacks were focused on Bernie Sanders and the surging Michael Bloomberg, both of whom were on the back foot most of the evening. Trump is assembling a team of advisors to help manage the pardon process. Trump is said to be weighing a flurry of additional pardon announcements, including of Roger Stone. Normally, the Department of Justice has wide latitude and input on presidential clemency. Trump, however, instead is relying on his friends at Mar-a-Lago. Trump named a longtime loyalist, acting director of national intelligence. Richard Grinnell is the current ambassador to Germany and has a history of being an ideologue. Grinnell apparently will remain ambassador to Germany while he serves as the acting DNI. He has no experience in intelligence and little in running a large bureaucracy. The DNI actually oversees 17 separate agencies. Trump's approval rating this week fell to 44%. Bernie Sanders has been given a 2 in 5 chance of winning the Democratic nomination. Michael Bloomberg passed Joe Biden into second in the polls. Trump passed 15,000 lines in his term. There are 257 days to go until the election. These are the Trump Diaries.
The Klonsky brothers spoke to Diane Ravitch in a special episode with Mario Smith. Ravitch, a contributor to the New York Review, discussed America's obsession with public school reform, the slow death of the charter movement, and what Betsy DeVos is doing to a precious resource. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11. Diane Ravitch is a historian of education and educational policy analyst and a research professor at New York University Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. Previously, she was a U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education. She writes for the New York Review of Books, and she joins us here on Lumpen Radio. And welcome again. You know, my, my history, and, and Mario, you were very uh, kind in skipping over it, was that I used to be on the dark side. Uh, when I was Assistant Secretary of Education, I worked in the first Bush administration, mm. and I was a proponent of high-stakes testing and charters and choice and accountability and all those things. And then in the 2000s, I began to realize none of this was working. It was having terrible negative effects on children, on education, on communities, and I did a total turnaround. And whereas I once viewed Michael Klonsky as a somewhat scary figure, I soon discovered he was my sole brother. Just mm. a teddy bear. He's just a <laughs> teddy bear. And then I discovered I had another brother, Fred Klonsky. Brother Fred. So. <laughs> Who is scary. <laughs> <laughs> when, can I ask you about your transformation? Sure. Uh, uh, is this something, did it, was this like a bolt of lightning? Or was it something that happened over time? You know, it's something that happened over time, which is uh, I was involved in three different conservative think tanks. Uh, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which pretty much runs education policy in the state of Ohio, even though they're based in D.C., and they have a great fortune. Um, and also the Corette Task Force at the Hoover Institution, which was like the creme de la creme of the conservative intelligentsia. And over the years that I was involved with them, I heard conversations and participated in conversations where people said, you know, we've sponsored 10 charter schools. This was Fordham. We've sponsored 10 charter schools in Ohio. They're all an academic emergency. Let's close them and open new ones. And then they, and there's also theft. There's fraud. We'll, we'll close that one. We'll open another one. Uh, we had many discussions about what to do about the fact that No Child Left Behind was failing uh, that the nothing that we were advocating was working. And so everybody else seemed to think, well, how do we make it better? And I started thinking it's not working. And if it's not... When you not, say working, Diane, what, 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 how would you define it's producing, that? Yeah. It's, it's failing. So charter schools were producing uh, failing schools. And when, so when the, 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 the kind of superficial plea was, let us save uh, black and brown children from failing public schools, but what do we do when we then put them in a failing charter school? Who's gonna save them from a failing charter school? So this internal discussion never went public, uh, that we knew that the charters were not saving anybody and that there was a lot of fraud going on. And the idea was, well, close it and start another one and just introduce an, what I saw as turmoil in the lives of children. And then the testing part, Everybody knew that wasn't producing any results. It was supposed to, the idea behind it was, well, we're going to get higher and higher test scores if we just test more and more and more, and if the tests get harder. And the internal discussions was, that's not producing higher, it's not producing what we thought it would produce. We're seeing uh, no change. Uh, the rich kids are getting the highest test scores. The poor kids are getting the lowest test scores. And 
their idea was, well, we have to, we have to change this a little bit, move this around, move that. I guess that uh, there, were, there, there were several turning points. One was when I, we had an internal discussion at Hoover where John Chubb, who was a great advocate of vouchers, uh, said, well, it's time to fix NCLB. And the task force, which was 10 people, put out a report on how to fix NCLB, and I refused to sign it. I said it's time to end NCLB, No Child Left Behind, the George W. Bush program. And so they put out their— A their, joint program, actually, right? This was, NCLB yeah. was supported by Kennedy, Ted and, Kennedy the, and, and the Democrats and as George, well. And George Miller of California. Yeah. And so it was bipartisan. And uh, it, it introduced this idea that every child in America needed to be tested every year from grades three through eight because there had allegedly been a Texas miracle. Well, we now know there was no Texas miracle, but we knew it at the time. And so we, we, we disagreed. They put out a, the rest of the task force put out a statement supporting the revision of No Child Left Behind. And I dissented, and they didn't print my dissent, but they said as a compromise they would uh, have an article in, in their, one of the conservative publications called Education Next, and John Chubb wrote an article called NCLB, It's Time to Mend It, and I wrote a dissent called NCLB, It's Time to End It. So that was pretty much my, guys, this doesn't work for me anymore. I'm a dissident. I don't belong here. But these were all your, these were all your lifelong uh, uh Comrades, your, right. your friends, so how, did they, how did they take it? Uh, how did they take your defection? Well, firstly, people said, well, why don't you just stay on and we'll, you can be our friendly dissenter. So I hung around till 2009. But meanwhile, I was writing a book that eventually came out in 2010 called The Life and Death of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education. And, and I that knew— That book really took off, didn't it? It did. It became a national bestseller. Uh, and it was like my declaration of, guys, I'm out of here. So I left before that came out. Otherwise, they probably would <laughs> not have welcomed me back anyway. But these were people that I had been friendly with for many years. And it turns out that it was a great advantage to me to have been on the inside of the right because I know all these people. I know, for example, that Nina Reese, who's the head of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, was Dick Cheney's education advisor. Uh, I know that Jeannie Allen, who runs something called the Center for Education Reform, uh, was previously the education analyst at the Heritage Foundation, which is a far-right group. And so I was part of that circle for many years, and I w worked in Washington, and I was kind of an inside enough so that I knew what they had been saying behind closed doors, which made me, uh, I guess, kind of dangerous. On the, other, on the other side... No, go ahead. Oh, I, 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 I do have a question, though, but go uh, ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, just uh, quickly, uh, on the other side... Did you find that the, the critics of of uh, of the Hoover Institute and the and the right wing's uh, uh, views on education viewed you with a certain degree of suspicion? Oh, of course. And a lot of people said that they didn't trust me. That you know, maybe this was just a temporary thing. And in any event, I was terribly stigmatized from having had this background. But you know, I had to say what I had to say. And I tried to be as honest as I could, and I have been saying uh, the same things now for 10 years. There was one critic I remember who, in effect, said that I was a whore and mm. that I couldn't be trusted because I'd already betrayed one side. Maybe I'd betray the other, uh, but Sounds I didn't Sounds like care. the language Michael Bloomberg might use. Well, no, it wasn't. It was a, it was a blogger <laughs> whose name I shall not mention. Um, <laughs> not, not a friend, I think, of any of ours. 
Um, but there, there were people who definitely said you came from the bad side, therefore you're not to be trusted. And, and that's just the way it is. I had to say what I had to say. Cloud Tones came into Studio A for a John Daly session. Off their forthcoming LP, this is Naps. It was engineered by Ari Shellist. you now are for your coverage of the wandering alderman election correct yes uh it's coming up in march yes it's coming up the third week of march Mm -hmm. it's gearing up to be a very exciting from what i've seen so far i've seen some of the the public debates i've seen some of the 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 moral challenges that a few of the competitors have been put through and i've just seen some people rise and fall to the occasions um and and i think it's gearing up to be a 
pretty a pretty exceptional wandering alderman. Now, now, very quickly, uh, describe the what the wandering alderman is sure. and their role in city uh, politics, because uh, the listener might not have caught some of our other stories about this. Very quickly. So, I mean. For all the Chicagoans out there, obviously we all know that Deacon Dunforth is our current wandering alderman, despite not being seen for several months. But if you're familiar with the face, if you're familiar with the nice smiling beard and the series of children's books, you'll know sort of what the alderman, wandering alderman is, is, is about, I think. Uh, and, the, and of course the idea of a wandering alderman is that they, they maintain a single uh, un, uh, unwarranted or, or sort of un, un, un barriered power. Uh, that they can declare amongst any groups that that they wish. There's no checks and balances in the Waldering Alderman. Um, it's 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 really just a way for Chicago as a city to to make small changes to get past the gridlock that we experience as a city um, for the common good of people and and particularly the na- the small neighborhoods and communities that require justice at any given time. I think one way to uh, conceptualize this too is that much in the same way that the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. is not in and of itself a state because it requires a certain amount of autonomy, the wandering alderman has no ward. Uh, He is beholden unto himself uh, and is able to make proclamations as they feel necessary and uh, as comes to them essentially. But being able to do this, having again having no checks and balances, having nobody to 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 call them or, or, or stop them um, in in any in any way, uh, the wandering alderman is a, is a very very important position that is not taken taken lightly. Um, so it is not it, it is not entirely controlled by a democratic vote. Uh, it's controlled by a series of, of moral challenges because uh, the wandering alderman. As, as you may know, is is an individual that has to be able to live uh, almost a, a uh, an ascetic life, um, wandering from neighborhood to neighborhood, making declarations and and just building up the people um, slowly to be able to you know carry out uh, his grand vision, their grand vision for for the neighborhood and, and what they need in that moment. Exactly. Broadcast every Saturday, eight to nine p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.